Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Great to see you all again here. Uh, well, it looks like a full house here. And I think maybe uh, from the grapevine that I heard during the week, we might have an empty service at half past three this afternoon. Thanks, so I'll just get a reminder for the mic here. Sweet. Thanks, man. <laughs> man, it's so good to see Doomy back. What a joy that is. And the Lord knows... Brother, uh, he put you on our hearts, and it was remarkable how people began to pray for you. What a wonderful thing it is to see you here as a direct answer to our prayers. We're so grateful for that. God grant you many more years, brother. I'd like to like to just say before I start today, I had a conversation with Daniel yesterday in the parking lot. And I was just telling her about this sermon today. And I was saying to her that, unfortunately, I'm going to have to say when I start that this sermon is going to be a failure. You know, it's an impossible task that I have today. So I'm just going to give it my best shot, knowing all of the holes that are in the sermon. If you're here to, maybe if you're a seminary student and you're here to do a critique on the sermon, uh, probably be best for you to put your pen and paper away now and just say, well, this guy failed. So with that, with that disclaimer before we start, I'd like to tell you what, what is on my heart today and what I would like to uh, deliver to you. And that is that last week we saw that the Word of God is central to everything that our church does. The Word of God is our foundation, it's our authority. The Word, is, word of God is what we love. The Word of God is that by which we know everything we know about God. Without the Word of God, we know nothing about God. So then, of course, the next logical step is this. If I would like to be engaged in a relationship with you, and I would like to help you by means of the Word of God, how do I do that? And, of course, in order to do that, I would have to go one of two ways. The one way would be to say, all right, let's take one particular life problem that people often struggle with and then we say all right let me show you how you would go through this particular problem by using the word of god but i chose not to do that i chose to go the other route and that is to say all right well here's a structure that you could use if you wanted to uh, strike up a relationship with somebody else in the church and you found out that that person is struggling with a particular issue here's here's a structure that you could follow and you could apply the structure with different biblical data to different problems in life. So I chose to go the structural way today rather than taking a particular problem and showing you how you go through that process with a particular problem because um, that could have taken us a lot longer. So 
you'll find that it's more general today rather than more specific. And I'm hoping that this generality is something that can apply to more of us. So, for example, you, you see somebody coming in through the door, visitor at the church, and I know we have some visitors today, so we have an opportunity today. Um, you see somebody coming in through the door and you think to yourself, yeah, I must go and talk to that person. And then you, you go walking to them and while you're walking towards that person, you're thinking to yourself, I'm a bit afraid. I, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. If I say this, what if they respond in that way? And then you say hi and they say hi. And you say, um, oh, it's nice to have you here. And they say, yeah, it's nice to be here. And then you think, what am I going to say next? So what I'm going to do here today is to just show a beautiful way in which you can move towards other people, reach out to other people and make those relationships meaningful. That's what biblical counseling is. It's moving toward other people, understanding how, how those people are, coming to see what scripture says about the unique ways in which those people are struggling and then helping them to walk that path by using biblical data as the heart of what you uh, of what fuels your relationship. So I've got plenty points. Last week was one point. Today there's eight points. So I'm really going to fly through these as quickly as possible. And in that is my failure. So let's begin with the beginning. How do we care for one another in the church? How do we move toward one another in the church in significant ways? And I've taken all of this material that I've got today, give or take, from a book called Caring for One Another by Edward Welch. And Edward Welch is one of the, the big names in the biblical counseling movement, all the way from the time when the second generation of biblical counseling began in the late 80s and early 90s. So Edward Welch is one of those guys that I love and trust. I read his, his stuff and he's a highly qualified man. He's qualified to speak. So he begins with us. Here's the first point. How do I approach somebody in the church? If I want to develop a relationship with somebody, we begin with humility. It's, there's nothing worse than coming into a relationship where all somebody wants to do is teach you stuff that you don't know, but they haven't found out what you don't know yet. We begin as humble people. And one of the ways that we can be humble people, of course, is becoming aware of our own failures. If I know how weak I am, I can go to somebody else and I know that that person is probably failing as well. And I can be humble in my relationship. I don't have unrealistic expected expectations of them. And one of the key texts that I'm going to be looking at today, from which this, um, this uh, truth that I need to be humble is drawn, is Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 4. And Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 1 to 4, I've put it on the screen there if you don't have time to scroll through your Bible. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, listen to the emotional tone in this text, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. So it's a humble person going out in this way that Paul is describing, longing to come into a relationship with a person that you can bear their burdens with them, know them and understand them. Notice also that humble people know Christ has taken away our guilt and our shame. 
how often it is that um, you come into a church setting and you know that one thing that people who approach you are listening for is they're listening for how you failed. And then they want to give you the Bible and they want to teach you the, the best way that you should be doing stuff instead of saying, well, you know what? I'm a sinner. I've lived a messed up life. I have lived a life for which I've reaped a whole harvest of guilt and I feel a whole burden of shame. And Christ has forgiven that. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm free from guilt and shame forever. And I need to understand that that person has also got a messed up life. And Christ has set them free, if they're a believer in the Lord Jesus, from that burden of guilt and shame. Humble people keep on praying. And in their prayers, as Donovan was preaching some time ago here in the Lament Psalms, we call out to God saying, God, you know how I'm struggling with this particular thing. You know how strong this temptation is. You know how strong my desires are and and my desires will not take no for an answer from me. And you call out to God in all of the pain. And people who are humble are approachable because somebody else can, can say, you know, this thing is so hard, this is difficult. And a caring, humble person doesn't come say, well, here's three instructions from the Word of God. If you follow these, you'll be okay. A humble person says, I understand that life is a painful process. It's difficult to get through this thing. Terrible times. Now, do me, we see him on the stage here just now. He's lived through a terrible time where a doctor says to him, Hey, bro, give us your last words because this is it. And there he goes into the ward. His wife doesn't know what's happening inside of the ward there. Praise God, he sent a believer to him to be a channel of communication for us. Otherwise, it would have been a blackout. And Dumi knows what it's like to suffer. So if somebody comes into this place and he says, you know, I had a terrible time with COVID. Dumi will be able to put his arm around that guy and say, man, brother, I understand the pain that you're going through. He doesn't pull out the Bible automatically and start giving verses to say, no, if you're feeling pain, you need to do this in order to get rid of that pain. Pain is real. And humble people acknowledge that. We're not all about bossing people around and trying to teach people what to do. We're friends. We go out humbly to people and realize that none of us have got it right in this life. And then, of course, humble people ask others to pray for them and with them. If you come to somebody and he describes a pain or a difficulty so big that you realize, I can't help this guy. The first thing you want to do is come to God and say, God, please help this guy. I've been speaking to people here in the church even this morning and hearing about difficulties that they've been experiencing just this week. And in my heart I'm saying, God, please help these people. I can't do it. I don't have enough money to pay for for everybody who's struggling. We don't have the resources. We're not the Savior. But we know the Savior. We can call out on Him. And humble people say, I'm not the Savior. I'm not the resource. I come to God and I say, God, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You own the wealth in every mine. You own everything. As Bono says, I serve a God who ain't short of cash. God has all the money in the universe. And He can give it to whoever He chooses. Humble people go to that God. So that's the first thing. If you want to engage in a relationship, you see somebody new coming through the door, you see somebody in the church that you haven't spoken to before, you say, well, let me go to that person and learn something. Let me be humble. Let me not step over there and see what I can teach that person. The second thing is to move toward other people. And of course, as Paul is saying in this text, he's speaking about living a life worthy of the calling you've received. 
is speaking about being humble and, and, and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. How do you bear with somebody in love without going to that person and finding out what's on that person's heart? How do you bear that person's burden if you have no clue what burden that person's enduring? And they're not going to just share it with you like, oh yeah, here's my burden. You're going to have to walk a road with that person. So you have to move towards somebody. You have to engage in a relationship with them. We're going to describe more details of that in a moment. But in Luke 15 verse 4 to 7, the Lord Jesus told them a parable. Verse 4 says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. There's lost sheep everywhere. There's so many lost sheep. I've been so surprised in this church when I've been able to engage in relationships with people beyond just the basics. How much pain people endure. How much difficulty people face. And how many people, tears are just under the surface. You just say the wrong thing. You just say the right thing. And suddenly people are, all of the emotion comes out. We need to move toward other people as that shepherd goes out after the lost sheep. God is always taking the initiative with us in the whole narrative of salvation. It is God who is the primary actor. It's God who loved me from before the beginning of time. It is God who created this universe in order that I could, that I could exist on it. It was God who came to me during all of those times in, in my sinful living. And He came to me and He convicted me of sin. It was God who came to me by the Holy Spirit and granted me new life. It was God who has been sanctifying me year after year after year. It's a story about God. And I happen to be the worthless wretch that God is blessing. Christ even lovingly pursues people who hate Him. Not only people that you would think, wow, this guy's a great saint. Romans 5.10 tells us, For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? We don't just choose the people who are going to look like the best conversation. We don't just move toward the people who are the most attractive or maybe who appear to have the most money. We don't go to people who can speak the best. I think, I don't see Julius here with us today. Julius, if you're here, you can stick up your hand. Maybe I didn't see you. But, you know, Julius, we all know Julius. He struggles to speak. And I've noticed how people avoid trying to communicate with Julius because it's difficult to know what he's saying. And it's really been a blessing for me to get to know Julius better and better. And when he says something, I put my ear a bit closer and I say, I'm sorry, brother, I don't know what you're saying. And then he tries again. And he says, I'm sorry, I didn't get that. And then he tries again. Hey, brother, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're saying. And then he tries again. And eventually you get something, you say, oh, is this what you're saying? And I say to myself, man, I just feel so happy by the grace of God that I was able to understand what this guy's trying to tell me. If you, just one little tip, if you want to communicate with Julius, it's best to text him because he's very eloquent in his texts. So, the Christ-like church moves toward the loner, moves toward the outcast, moves toward the awkward person, no person should be left on the fringes because they're awkward and they can't mingle with 
God's people. The church is a place where we go out and we make friends and we develop relationships with people who would not, not ordinarily form a relationship with a stranger. Great love, of course, risks great humiliation. You know what it's like when you see somebody and you wonder how they're going to respond. Let's say I play the guitar, I see this guy coming in here and I think, yes, I know this guy and he's really good. What am I going to say to that person? What am I going to risk without being humiliated by this person? What if it's a stranger and I don't know what they're going to say? Maybe they're going to respond in a hostile way. Like you hand a tract or something to somebody and they shove it back on your chest and then you feel embarrassed. Maybe somebody saw. But in the church, if we love people, if we cultivate a love deep enough that we are willing to approach those people and we are willing to approach those people humbly and we are willing to risk being humiliated, God will bless us in this church. We will see great blessing as friendships develop, as people develop tighter and closer relationships and we have genuine love developing between ourselves. Rather than just the superficial, hey, how's it going? How are you, man? Have a lucky week. Edward Welch tells a short story in his book, really short. It tells a story about a young man who went to a midweek Bible study. And while they were, everybody was sharing at the midweek Bible study, this young man said to everybody at the Bible study, he was a very quiet guy, he said, this last year has been the worst year of my life. And after he said that, nobody responded. Everybody was quiet. Nobody knew what to say. And eventually, somebody in that Bible study group noticed that that guy hadn't been coming to the Bible study group. In fact, they noticed that he hadn't been coming for 10 years. So this person eventually went out and said to this guy, Hey, what happened? He said, Well, I was, I was at the Bible study. Everybody was sharing what was happening in their lives. I said I had the worst year in my life over the last year. And nobody said anything. And nobody even noticed I said that. And he thought, well, you know, this is definitely not the place for me. And I'm, that's extreme. You know, you've got weird things happening all the time. I've been in churches where people don't notice if you're not there for two years. And I'm hoping that in our church we move toward other people in such a way that a, a bizarre story like this is never true. There's always people, we've had people in this church, they'll say, you know, never once did anybody phone me or, you know, never once did anybody come visit me or something like that. But often, those are the people who make themselves difficult to pursue in this church. In this church, we want to cultivate a culture where people move out towards each other constantly. We're constantly identifying people who are missing and we do that. In our elders meetings, in our staff meetings, we write a list of people that we haven't seen every week. And we contact, contact those people one after the other and say, hey, we missed you on Sunday, everything okay? And I know that as you're sitting here, some of you have received messages like that. You've Definitely, if, you, if you've missed a service or two, you've been contacted by people in the church. We want to develop a culture in this church where you go out toward other people. We humbly move toward others because God moves towards us. That's the nature of the church. And then thirdly, we have to know the heart. So now you get into the situation that I was describing just now. You come 
You come to church, you see somebody walking in the door and you say, wow, I should really go and speak to that person that looks, looks like there's no sort of outgoing chatty person standing around here who's going to get them. So let me go, let me, let me go sort of in a, in a bit of a nervous way and I'll say hello to the person and see, see what happens. So you say hi and then you say, how are you? And they say, I'm fine, and you? And you realize what you've done, you've just entered into a superficial, first level type of conversation. So, as you humbly approach this person as a servant of Christ to go and reach out to them, then you've got to decide, what am I going to say? And it really, really, really helps to think about how you're going to approach this whole matter of communication. How am I going to speak to this person? What am I going to say? So you know you're going to say hi. Or hello, or Dumela, or <laughs> what was that thing I was chatting with you about? Give it uh, walla walla. You know, you say something to somebody, and uh, then they're going to respond. They're going to say hi. You know, I'm great. You know, and then what are you going to do next? The next thing you'll probably discover is is a second level of communication where people start saying, "Oh yeah, I've had a busy week." They sort of give you this diary type information. Yeah, on Tuesday I was at the shop buying bananas and uh, I saw this thing happen. You know, the sort of surface level, hey, my kids are doing well at school or man, isn't this weather crazy? And you know, those sort of, you know, that's not, that's not on the level of hi, how are you? Okay, cheers, but it's the next level where people are willing to share diary type information with you, like I've, I've put there on the screen, I think. Um, you know, I had a busy day, or it's like hot weather, or hey, I must get to the shops, or you know, this, this or that happened at school, or I've got an exam to write, or something like that. But then you say, that's cool, you know, that's the way you develop relationships with people. You know, like hey, where I live, it's very dusty, that's why my car's dirty, or something like that. People find out more information about you. That's necessary. It's necessary to say hi. You can't just start with, where were you this week? You know, you've got to start with a hi. So obviously you've got to get through some levels of communication, but what you're really aiming at if you want to reach out to a person in a significant way is you want to find out what is going on inside their heart. We're going to look at reaching the hearts just now, but you want to find out what really makes that person move. If you have a desire that people know certain information about you, if they could just take the time to hear you out, this is what you would tell them. If you want to find that out about somebody else, we need to go to a deeper level of communication. And the easiest way to do that, the most direct way you can do that in conversation is to find out what it is that they're emotional about. Find out what it is that, that, they, that they desire very badly. One of the things I like to do in conversation is I like to test the, a couple of different topics until I find out what that person's passionate about and then I just follow them in conversation all the way in that particular topic that really takes their heart and then you find out so much about what makes people move. You find out what they long for, you find out if they want a particular computer, why it is that they want that particular model and that I, I like a fast computer man, you know I like this particular graphics card because of the definition and uh, this, you know you get into what people are passionate about and then you, you can't stop them. And you learn and you learn and you learn about what moves people. You learn about what makes people tick at a deep level. And you know, so few people are, could be bothered about pursuing what makes people move at a hard level. So let us at Living Hope Church be the church that is determined to find out what moves people at a deep level. What do you long for? What do you desire? What makes you angry? What makes you feel like absolutely lonely or in a state of despair? 
What irritates you in conversation? If somebody says this to me, that's a red flag for me. Find out what makes people emotional and you're going to find out what is going on in their heart. Developing relationships like this become incrementally deeper because obviously on a first conversation, people might share what makes you angry, like on the road, because everyone gets angry. But on a first conversation, they're going to test what you do with that delicate information and then they're going to share a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more as they see how you deal with what they're sharing from, from their private stash. And they're going to either choose not to talk to you anymore or they're going to choose to just open up more and, and just be more and more vulnerable. So those kind of relationships where you find out what's happening inside of a person, they get deeper and deeper and more and more satisfying and more and more beautiful. So that's the kind of conversation we're looking for. We're looking for what that person really longs for other people to know if that person took the time to find that out about them. And I know, in, even in many relationships in this church, I've really wanted to find out who you are. But I have to confess that in many relationships, I've failed at that. I've been a person who hasn't taken the time to hear many of you in the church out. And a lot of that is, you know, shortage of time. But a lot of it is just simple failure. That I didn't care enough to pursue certain hard issues with you. And if I failed you, I would love to hear from you. I'd love you to message me and say, bro, you failed me. Let's sit down and talk. I'd love to share with you what I would like you to know if you just took the time to listen. And I'm trusting that that's what each one of us in the church is saying to each other person. I failed you. I haven't listened to you. I haven't taken the time to listen. So please give me another chance. Let me hear your heart. Let me hear. Let me bear your burdens, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Ask yourself, what is this person longing for somebody to know and understand about him or her? You know, you could say, if you could share the thing that you really want me to know about you, what would you say? You don't have to get some mysterious technique to find that out. You can actually ask somebody. If they don't want to share it, that's okay. If they share it the second time or the third time, eventually they'll realize you do want to know. That you do actually care. And inside of this, you need to discover three kinds of desires. It's not just desire. People are not just vanilla flavor or chocolate flavor, you know. There's three kinds of desires. We have natural desires, we have moral desires, and we have Godward desires. A natural desire, for example, is rest. Sometimes I talk to Jimmy, you know, after he's been working a long shift in the hospital and we're coming for premarital counseling and I see him and I say, Wow, Jimmy, you look so tired. He's like, yeah. I'm very tired. And you can see it, you know, written all, of it, all over his face. And then I say, okay, we're not going to make the session long today. And he says, thank you. <laughs> you know, he has a desire to rest. Is that a right desire? Is it a wrong one? That's a right desire. You know, when you're tired, you need to rest. That's the way God made us. People have a desire for good health. People have a desire for safety, for provision, for meaningful contribution in life. I want my, my life to count for something. I don't want to just go poof out and no one even knows. Alan who? Ah, no. Sorry, I don't remember who he was. You want a desire for a peaceful life. You, want a you have a desire for love. And we should care about these desires because God cares about these desires. God made all of these things for us. God made rest. And if we care about these things, so should we care about them in other people. If somebody says, I'm so tired, I want to rest. I say, yeah, 
let me make this session a bit shorter so you can get to bed earlier. And he says, thank you. I care about it. He wants to be there. We're trying to accommodate each other. So that's one natural desire. We can help people. Someone's hungry. Help them with some food if you're able to help with food. Sit down. You know, I was at the new baby home yesterday. And I walked in there. Guys are busy eating. I'm kind of them sitting eating supper. And I'm, hey, sorry guys. I walk in here while you're eating. No, come sit down. Eat some food. I mean, that's love. The second kind of desire is moral. Does this person understand the concept of right and wrong attached to this desire? Um, you can take a natural desire for rest. And if somebody so badly desires rest, that they're willing to get angry with you if they don't get rest, or like irritable and short-tempered, you can say, well, rest is a natural desire, but if you're willing to become angry, sin against God by becoming, by becoming angry because you're not getting your rest when you want it and how you want it and where you want it, now you realize that there's a moral desire attached. Moral desires have to do with whether a person understands the rightness or wrongness attached to this particular desire. Is this person being upright and steadfast and clean and penitent and pure? Does this person have honest desires to do what's right? Or is this person being duplicitous or deceitful? Are they being corrupt or hard-hearted? Or are they being foolish in their decisions? Are they reaping the consequences of foolish actions, but they desire the benefits of right actions? Find out what people desire. Find out if what type of desire it is. Listen for these things. Find out if this desire has a moral element, a, a right or wrong element. Does this person have a mix of desires inside of them? Or let's say they made a foolish decision and they want to do what's right. And they're regretting the consequences of doing something wrong. People are not just simple and, I like the Afrikaans word, Ian Foda. I don't know if you can translate that literally, but they've just got one fault. You know? <laughs> just straightforward, simple, plain. You know? Then also there's a Godward element to these desires. Where does God fit into this this person's life direction, into the main drive, the main motivation that's pushing this person toward their goals in life. This is where you find the most personal and real interactions with God. So you've got a person who desires certain things, they know that there's right and wrong attached to that certain thing, and if a person is willing to forego, to avoid fulfilling their desires because they want to please God, you know that now you're coming to the very deepest place where you can interact with an individual at their Godward desires. Who does this person love? That's the question you want answered. So I was asking a guy just the other day, and maybe he's watching our sermon online, but I'm not going to tell you his name, but I was asking him, and he was saying, you know, he, this is particular drug that he, he likes to take, and he knows that when he's on his way to go and buy that drug, he knows that the rule inside of his relationship with his wife is that he must phone her when he's feeling tempted so she can convince him not to do it. And he says to me, hey dude, in that time, I just turn the ACDC on and I just go. And I think about all the rest afterwards. And I want to know if a person that I'm speaking to, if him or her, is he or she loving themselves so much that they will just go and do the thing that they want to do, regardless of what God thinks about it, or are they able in that 
that moment of calamity where they're heading towards sin to say, God does not desire this. There's a Godward element in this whole process. And the worst thing that I can do in this moment is sin against God. Does that person have that motivation inside of them? And that's where you're going to reach the deepest desires. When you discover a person's desires, how do you respond when somebody tells you, you know what, the only thing I'm thinking about now is, is going to watch some more porn. You're like, <gasps> or do you say, hey, dude, I've been there. I know what that's like, you know, if you've, if you've struggled with that. You need to respond to people's confession of desire by saying, man, you know, I love what is beautiful in you. I can see love or joy or peace or patience or kindness, you know, any of the fruits of the Spirit. I love that about you. But this doesn't matter if the whole rest of a guy's life is a mess and he's struggling with any kind of sin. You identify something that is godlike in this person, some cultivation that the Holy Spirit has performed in this person's heart, and you love that person for that particular thing. You say, All right, we can start from there. You're not like a teacher waggling your finger in somebody's face and saying, no, 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 no. You know, you don't make it. Like in the army, you muck at me. You know, Sinai <laughs> Buam. You see that tree over there and that means you run. Bring a leaf from that tree. Come back. What? You pull the leaf off the tree? Uh, 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 uh. Go back. Put it back. We don't come to people like we're the teacher, like we're their boss. We don't come to them like we are the standard that they must meet up to. You should be more like me. Doesn't matter what you like. When people come into this place, we look at those people and when they share their desires, we love what is beautiful regardless of anything else in their lives. We show compassion for suffering that people share with us. We don't want to be like that guy who opened up in that midweek Bible meeting and said, this is the hardest year of my life. And everyone's just like, well, let's not talk to that guy because we're going to get into a real awkward conversation. No, you want to hear. I want to experience people's sufferings as if I'm there with them. I want to be able to weep with people who are weeping. And I have wept with people who are weeping. I've listened to people in counseling where they've told me the tragedy that that their lives have spiraled into. And I've been in tears with people because... I want to go on that journey with people. I don't want to avoid awkward moments when people share their sufferings with me. Show compassion for suffering. And the more you show compassion for people's suffering, the more you're going to hear. If you go out of your way to listen, you move towards this person for this particular purpose. And then the fourth point here. Out of these eight points that I want to share. With all humility was the first one. Second is you need to move toward other people. Take the step and go. And then we need to know the heart. We need to look at Proverbs 20 verse 5. Which speaks about the heart of a person being deep waters. And we need to dig it out. We need to discover it. And we need to um, plan our conversations. This is where I'm going to go. If I want to know this person at a deeper level. We need to look at people's desires and and distinguish between natural and moral and Godward desires. And we need to know how to respond to people's desires. We need to discover what people are trusting and loving. And we need to know how they relate to God inside of their desires. And fourthly, we need to know that people have critical influences in their lives. Nothing is ever just simple and straightforward in human life. 
Everything is complicated. Everything is always messy. There's always mess. We're in a fallen world. That's what we expect. So we must know that there are some critical influences that influence people. Now, on the next slide here, there's a picture that um, Ed Welch puts in his book. And I know this is a very primitive picture, but he uses it just to, to put the context so we understand what he's saying. So you'll notice there, um, the living God is outside of the circle. Right in the center of the circle is the human heart. And of course, by heart we mean the, the core or the center of, of a person. You know, where his desires are seated, where, where the core of the person is seated. Now you'll notice in those, in those circles that surround the heart, you've got the physical body, which is the closest thing to an individual. You know, if my body is injured, like Colleen with her, her hand that she's been walking around with in pain, she takes that more personally than if somebody else's hand got stolen. Now this is me. It's me that's hurt. I could lose the use of my finger or my hand. So the heart, the very closest influence to you is your physical body. If you're sick, it changes everything. If you're in pain. And then you've got other circles that go around there. You've got just, these are just random examples. You've got culture, you've got other people, you've got work, you've got money. And then outside of that, he speaks about spiritual beings. Other people, you know, you've got, uh, you've got angels, you've got demons, uh, you've got all kinds of influences. And I think if we had to draw this diagram accurately, those circles would be so full of influences outside of us that you wouldn't have enough paper to write. So it just does this as a concept. So what we're trying to do here is when I'm speaking about critical influences, I'm trying to start with you as an individual in your heart. And then I'm showing you all of the clutter that gets in between you and God. How that all of these influences influence your thought process before you come out to God. Like when you're feeling sick. Dumi was just sharing with us a moment ago about suddenly you realize the doctor's asking you for your last words. And you're thinking, oh man, I'm going to face God any moment. And have I lived a good life? Is God pleased with me? And immediately the physical body is interacting with so many different things you've got the doctor speaking to you all these things that are trying to derail your path of thought before you find your way to the living God so let's look at these critical influences one of the critical influences is people and I've sort of changed Ed Welch's words here our people our bodies our circumstances I've just you know made it flow a little bit better so the first influence is our people our people can help to heal us and our people can help to harm us. People can, uh, individuals can really excel when they are influenced by good people and they have sufficient resources. You know that a person, you just put him in the right place, in the right company, with the right encouragement, people can really fly. But exactly the opposite is also true. You put people with the right friends and the right resources and they can also become wicked. They can fail, they can be ungrateful, they can become very wicked people. In contrast, some people excel in spite of opposition. And they become surprisingly accomplished. We think of the Lord Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3. When he endured the opposition of sinful men and he accomplished the greatest feat that this world has ever seen. He accomplished the greatest feat that any human being has ever accomplished in this world. What a glorious thing. We see Joseph in Genesis, the latter chapters of Genesis. And we see him against all opposition, a type of Christ succeeding where he didn't have any of the elements that pushed him toward great success. 
So the point is not to say, well, this guy's got good friends and he's got a lot of resources. Therefore, he's fine. He's going to be okay. You need to find out how this person's other people are relating to them. How many times is it that you really want to accomplish something, but you've got somebody real close to you who's really negative and cynical, and he's, he's constantly chipping in the bad news, so you become fearful and hesitant, and you, and you, dis, you lose your, your confidence to go and do that thing that you believed was right in the start. How are this person's relationships and resources influencing their perception of God? How is that line on the chart becoming crooked because of this person's interactions with other people? Are there other people helping this person to think of God? Or are there people that are making this line crooked so they're not seeing God clearly? I'm hoping that my description of this chart is clear enough. Are these people questioning or loving the character of God when they are either in pain or in pleasure? You know, pleasure and pain are are two huge temptations that we face in this life. And people go wrong in both of them, pain, pain or pleasure. And then we've got our bodies. Our bodies are strong or weak. When you're speaking to somebody you know is living in a physical body, and the body has all kinds of things to do with the way that that person perceives God. If you want to know this person, find out how his physical body is impacting the way he thinks about God. These are the thoughts that you want to find out. These are the most helpful and loving things to discover. Our bodies are us. And our bodies powerfully influence our hearts. Health is important to people, so we need to understand how people are thinking about their physical bodies. In fact, I don't even need to do this, you're probably all thinking this already, but just name the number one thing that comes up every time we have a prayer meeting. Health, 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 health. My granny's health, my grandpa's health, my cousin's health, my sister's health, my health, George's health, Peter's health. Operations, hospital, cancer. You know, that's the num- you've got to agree with me. It's the number one thing we talk about because personal health is important to us. When we hear other people are sick, we care about them. We pray for them. We long for them to get better. Our bodies have a massive influence and our bodies in- uh, impact the way that we think about God. They can make the line crooked or we can think on a straight course in spite of our health. We need to understand how people are thinking in that way. Understanding human weakness makes you a humble and weak person. You're like, I know what it's like to be humble because I'm weak. God has brought me to the floor in my human experience. So I can go to that person and I can say, it doesn't matter if you can't walk fast. I'll I'll walk slowly with you. Like Julius we were talking about. It doesn't matter if you can't communicate eloquently. I'm willing to just listen because I know my own weaknesses. I know how other people have to put up with me. Take the time to listen. Take the time to be there for a person. Don't rush, 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 because then he can't speak anymore. And all kinds of other things. We take the time to listen to people about how their health and their physical bodies are impacting the way they see God. And then our circumstances. Our circumstances are powerful influences. And really, I could, you can just see why I'm failing today, because I'm opening so much that I can't possibly even stop in any of these places. Our circumstances are powerful influences, but what I want to say in conversation is that you know that that person's circumstances, they do not have the power to turn that person's heart for or against God. You as an individual do that. That person does that. 
He takes his circumstances as an opportunity to say, I desire to honor God in this situation. Or I desire to honor myself and do what I personally want to do, regardless of what God wants me to do. Circumstances, the Bible teaches, do not have the power to change your heart. You do that inside of your own trials. And you want to hear how people think about their circumstances. Do they consider themselves a victim to their circumstances? Or do you see them saying, yes, this is a dire situation, but I trust God. Like Paul did in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, for example. Just go and read that text. People can become aggressive in detours in their lives. And you can listen for that. If you find out that this person has just experienced, everything's going great and then suddenly something happened. My wife left me. Or I crashed my car. Or I lost my job. Those detours are real, real things in people's circumstances. But you want to hear how that detour in life, that unexpected change, has caused them to think about God. You can love a person by doing that. And then fifthly, the fifth thing is not, not only do we approach people with humility, not only do we move towards others like Jesus describing going after the lost sheep, but we know the heart, we go for the heart in conversation, we discover all kinds of desires, we distinguish between them, we know the critical influences, we find out the things around them and the people that are around them that are influencing them, especially other people, our bodies and circumstances. But then we speak about the way in which we talk to people. In psychology, you've got this, this idea, this Freudian idea. If you don't know who Freud was, it's okay. He was a, a theorist that lived a long time ago. But he had an idea that it is most unprofessional to allow what they call transference to take place in a counseling relationship. And transference is if I'm a guy, let's say I like playing the guitar, I like eating blue cheese, you know, I like, um, I like drinking kombucha. Let's just say those are three things I like, okay? Maybe you don't like them, but if I'm a counselor and I'm guilty of transference, that person that I'm counseling will come out liking playing the guitar, they'll like eating blue cheese, and they'll like drinking kombucha because they're just like me. And, and in Freudian psychology, and I know this is a sort of a general principle in psychology as a whole, you cannot be guilty of transference. You cannot be an individual who interacts with another individual in such a way that you transfer your own personal worldview and your own personal likes and dislikes or anything personal to you. You can't transfer that to other people. That's no, you can't do that. But in the church... Our whole lives are so bound up with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are personal beings. And when we approach another person, we are intending to mingle in such a way that we get very personal. That we are trying to influence each other for that squiggly line to become straight. So that through all of those circumstances, we all see in the same way, the biblical way. We are trying to, we, we are trying to be influenced by the Lord Jesus Christ and by one another to the degree that we resemble the, 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 the Lord Jesus Christ. So, all of life is personal to God. Everything that you do, the way you brush your teeth and comb your hair, it's very personal and it matters to God. Because God is a personal being. We need to bring a person to Him and we, 
we, we come as an individual who cares to God and we, we, make, we expand the conversation to three people. We include God. And as we're speaking with this people, this person, we need to bring their cares to the Lord Jesus Christ. We bring them in a very personal way. We don't matter about transference. We say, I care about this. We want to we go to God together. And people are learning from the way in which you deal with their cares and concerns. Coming to God in prayer with their pleasures and their pains. You will know that you've started to understand a person when you desire to pray for that person. Because then there's something on your heart and you say, this is too big for me. I'm just this one little guy and I can't help this guy with this big problem. God, please help us. When you feel like the urge to call out to God, you know you've done a good job at understanding something of that person's heart. So that's the first thing. Just be personal with people. Pray. Share your own stories. Tell them what's going on in your own heart. Tell them about your own failures. Be real. Be normal. Use casual language. Like some people in counseling, they come in there with such fancy language. You know, like we've got to, we've got to keep this all formal. And other guys, like this guy I spoke to on Friday, he's telling me, Hey dude, that was a crazy question, man. And I'm like, hey, I love this. I love being with different characters and being so real and normal with people. And I pick up a bit of their language as well and talk to him back. Yeah, man, dude, that was great, wasn't it? <laughs> And then the sixth thing, we do talk about people's sufferings. Remember, there's only eight points here today. I'm just rushing to try and finish here. We talk about suffering. It is almost always, I can just, let me say this real loudly and clearly. It is almost always unhelpful to give advice or a a worse personal story to somebody who's suffering and in an emotional state. If somebody... Like Romelda, you remember a couple of, like a year ago or so, when she, when she gave us a voicemail as a church and she's saying, pray with me, pray with me, I just hit a little boy in the street. You remember that? She's in an emotional state. You know, what would, what would I do then? Let's pick up the phone. Romelda's like, hey, Ellen, just pray for me, pray for me. I hit this guy, he's lying, his blood on the ground and every, this crowd is starting to gather and people are angry with me and they're shouting. I said, you know what? Let's go to um, Romans chapter 5 and let's open at verse 1. And You know, it's inappropriate to, when somebody's in an emotional state to begin to lecture them on what they should have done. Or if you begin to tell a story, like chatting with Colleen about her hand, and I did share a story with her. But my point is, don't share another story with somebody else that's worse than their story and the purpose is to shift the focus from them to you. It's okay to share your, your personal, like if you, somebody says, like Doom is telling us about how he went through COVID. If you say, yeah man, you know, I know Andre went through that as well. You know, you share a story inside of your own experience. But the point is not to take the focus off him. The, po- the focus of sharing a story is to say, this helps me to understand what you're busy telling me now. That's the purpose of personal stories. So we never, I never... I do my absolute best never to try and lecture a person who's suffering, a person who's emotional, a person who's crying. If somebody's in a state of grief, I know you and I, we both worry about what to say. And that is because we're trying to think about some kind of instruction we can give them. Hey, what instruction? Well, don't instruct them. Go to a person. Be with them. If you want to know what to say, ask them questions. Ask them how bad it is until you want to cry with them. 
And you sit there and you hear, you want to carry, you want to feel the burden that this person is experiencing. And you want to weep with them. You want to be in a state of sorrow with them. Because the, the thing that a person who's sorrowing wants you to know more than anything else in this world is how big this thing is. They want you to know that this is a big thing. And you want to feel the bigness of that with them. Who cares if you want to come and give them instructions? You're like, hey, you know, when I did this, here's some three things that are going to be helpful to you. Just keep that. People don't want your instructions when you come there. They're crying, you're not crying, and you're all sober and confident and you're going to give them instructions. They just want you to sit and cry with them over the enormity of what's just happened. They want you to grasp the, grasp the bigness of their suffering. So talk about suffering. Don't try and instruct people who are in a state of strong emotions. Think about things that people have said to you that were helpful. Like, tell me more. Help me to understand why this is such a big thing to you. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. I can see you're in a state of sorrow and I'd really like to be with you in your sorrow. Help me to understand what it was like for you to get through last night alone. Think of unhelpful things I've shared with you. People who've tried to tell you what to do. Oh, there's a quick way to fix that. You know, here's three steps. That's very unhelpful. If you don't know what to say, ask more questions. Find out more. If you say, if you're feeling awkward, you say, I'm feeling awkward. I don't know what to say. Please explain. Help me to understand what's happening inside of you. Feel the person's sorrow. But then this critical moment, the critical moment comes when a person's emotions begin to subside and begin to prod questions in that person. And then they begin to ask questions. They, they say to you, I don't understand why it is that God had to take my wife or my husband. Is God punishing me? And they start to begin to think through this thing in a more um, logical way. And, you, and at that point, you begin to find out. What is going on in their hearts. And you begin to have opportunity to speak. And what are, what are you going to say? The first thing you're going to keep in mind. When you're speaking to somebody who's suffering. Is that God is moved by your suffering as well. Who cares what I have to say? God cares. And that's the first line of hope. That we can offer people. God is moved. Remember in Exodus 2 verse 22. Where we see God hearing the, the cries of his people in Egypt. And God comes to have a look and God comes to help them and God comes to rescue them. We come to, we come to God with those sorrows because you can't fix them. We have to say that suffering is not the only thing that's going on here with people. We've got to come to the point where we've got to say, you know what, this is a terrible thing. And praise God that that is not the only thing that we're facing. We're facing something very hopeful and glorious. God is grooming you for greatness. God is allowing you to go through the suffering because you are developing character. Just think of Romans chapter 5 as Paul shows that we rejoice, we, we boast in our sufferings. Not because suffering is pleasant, but because God is doing something amazing in my heart. through He's pushing me through the fire and I'm going to come out like God. A third thing that we need to focus on when we respond to suffering is that we have a suffering champion. 
In the Lord Jesus Christ, we can see suffering made into a beautiful thing. Christ used suffering to make something beautiful. We see the Lord Jesus Christ going through terrible, terrible, terrible experiences. And now, as we look back, Jesus makes that suffering a glorious and amazing and astounding reality. We stand before a great champion who's gone before us and we can say, God, please make me like the Lord Jesus through my suffering. I've told you, some of you, before, when my wife died, I was sitting in the car, in the driver's seat, I stopped along the side of the road. She had died in the seat next to me. And when I realized that she had died, the first thing I said was, Lord, please help me to suffer well. It's like, God, I don't know how this is going to play. I don't know what's going to happen in the next few, but just please help me to do this well. And I remember praying that prayer and God helped me. The, the pain, nothing could relieve the pain. The pain was absolutely terrible and I can't even describe it. But one thing I do know is that I had, alongside of that pain, I had massive joy. So we never have to be timid about speaking about Christ the suffering champion with people who are suffering because suffering is never, ever, ever the only thing that is going on inside of a person's heart. We can experience both suffering and joy at the same time. And that means that this person is being tempted by Satan as well to deny God for that line from their heart to God to become crooked and and kinked. And it's tempting them to be reliant on themselves. But it means that suffering is an opportunity for their faith to shine as Jesus Christ shone in his sufferings. Your trauma, your victimization, your abuse, it brings you into a narrative that is far more beautiful than words can describe. And the day is going to come when you're going to look back at your suffering and you are actually going to say, God, thank you. For bringing me through suffering. Because this has brought me to this present point of beauty and glory. In God's presence. Seventhly. We want to talk about sin. Now you're probably wondering when I was going to get to this. This is point number seven. So the reason why I think Welch puts point seven right at the end here. No, second last. Is because that's not the first thing we as church members are going out. I don't want to approach somebody by saying, Oh, here's a new person. Let me find out what they're doing wrong and try and set them right. We've got to come to a point where we love people, where we can have a relationship with somebody, where we can see sin more clearly, where a lot of things we might have interpreted as sin before suddenly becomes not an issue anymore because we can understand them. We come with wisdom and humility and caution and we always say a little bit less than we were going to say rather than more you never have to go like a bull in a china shop but we do talk about sin and again as we started humility 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 your own personal failures make you humble to speak to somebody else who is sinning You know, we never go to somebody and speak to them about their sin as if we are the standard to be measured by. We think we are so holy. We think we have achieved so much. We think we've grown and matured so much in the Christian faith that we have a right to come down on on this little weakling who is sinning. That is never the case. It doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. You always approach sin with humility, conscious of your own failings. Of your own sin that you just cannot get rid of. You're going to suffer with sin for the rest of your life. Remember 
that a Christian is a saint. These are three key words. A Christian is a saint who is suffering and who is sinning. I like Edward Welch's three words that he puts in there. A saint, a sufferer, a sinner. If you want a guideline when you're talking to somebody, first find out who this person is. Is this person a saint? Find out all their joys and sorrows being a saint. You find out about their suffering and only then do you begin to become more qualified to identify sin that needs to be dealt with. If it needs to be dealt with at all by you. Man, there's just so much I want to say here, but time is flying. Remember that Christians have the power to incrementally defeat sin in their lives. No, they won't get it right first time. No, they might not get it right the second time or the 200th time. But on the 201th time, they will have some success. And you rejoice in that success for them. Maybe on the 350th temptation, they have another moment of success. And you rejoice with them in that success. You don't need to be cracking down on people for their sin all the time. Satan does that. Satan's the accuser of the brothers. You need to encourage people. You need to encourage them by the grace of God to excel in this. Remember that Christ has removed both their guilt and their shame. I've said this twice already today because it's absolutely critical. So how do we talk about sin? Well, you're going to find out about sin in one of three ways. Either you're going to be speaking to a person and they're going to tell you. Or that person is going to tell somebody else and that person is going to tell you. Or, you know, which is pretty much exposure. Or else this whole thing is just going to come blown out and everybody's going to hear about it and the person's going to be publicly exposed. So you're going to find out in one of three ways. And you know the absolutely best way to, for you to find out about somebody's sin is in private conversation with that person where you care enough to hear that person's heart and their struggles and they come to you and they're timid and they're cautious and they say, you know, actually... I've never told anybody this, but this is one thing that I'm struggling with and it's been dogging me my whole life. That's how you want to hear about sin. We need to cultivate, go out to people and cultivate relationships where they feel confident to share their deepest sins with you and you're not going to go and put it out on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever. They know they can trust you with this deepest secret because they, they can see an integrity and a care for their souls inside of you. So you're going to find out in one of those three ways. You need to respond to sin with sorrow. Please, when somebody confesses sin to you, don't look shocked. Don't look at them and say, Oh, sis, what did you do? Because you know your mind is a dictionary of sins that you've committed that are far worse than what that person is willing to confess. Because you know the reality is far worse. And your mind is a whole encyclopedia with things you've done that you would never tell somebody else. And if you confessed one of those sins to somebody and they were all like shocked and holier than thou, like self-righteous, and they're like, no, sis, this is disgusting. The elders need to hear about this. They're never going to talk to you about sin again. You're going to smash the relationship. But being a person who is conscious of your own sin, you respond to their sin with sorrow because you know how you have suffered under the scourge of sin. You struggle to break free from sin. And you know that this person is a suffering person. And you come to them and you say, man, I'm so sorry to hear you struggling with that. That is a terrible thing. I, would, I long for you to be free from that sin. I will walk with you. 
I will struggle with you. I will hear of your struggles. I will go through what it takes to help you to break free. You respond with sorrow. You respond with solidarity. I will stand with you. I'm a fellow saint. You're a fellow sinner, so you express sorrow. You're a fellow saint, so you serve that person in love, walking with them. You respond patiently and kindly because you know that once you've given them your little word of wisdom, well, let me tell you what helps me. I just do this. And then you expect them to be fixed. They're going to come back to you and confess the same thing again. And again and again and again. And you're going to struggle to go through this. And you need to be a kind and patient and gracious person so that they can keep coming back to you. You never want to close the door because you aren't at the standard that they're trying to measure up to. Ask questions that lead a person to see the gravity of their sin rather than giving them exhortations. Reason it out with them. Don't start giving instructions. Reason with those people instead of pointing an accusing finger. Be motivated by God's grace to sinners. Because this sin is deeply personal and the grace of God is deeply personal. Rather than saying, you know, you can do better next time. Trust God. Trust the grace of God. Trust the power of God to power that person through eventually as they struggle and they engage in the struggle. And the final point here. Oh, make use of the community of grace. The church is absolutely priceless. Something that the world doesn't have. It's not a support group this. This is a, a body that comes together to help suffering Christians. And we all suffer to some degree. The final point here. Sorry, this is taking so long guys. I really... I know it was an impossible task when we started. But this is the final point. Remember and reflect. Think about all of these things. You don't just you know, get in and out of relationships. You need these relationships to impact you in your whole life. How does the church grow? The church grows, this is what church growth looks like, ordinary people moving toward ordinary people. That's pretty much how we started. How do we engage in relationships? Get up and go. Get up and walk to the person. Doesn't matter if I feel embarrassed or I say something stupid. Just get up and go. Reach out. Do these things. Pursue the person at a level of depth that they've never been pursued at before. This is what church growth looks like. It doesn't mean our church is growing if this hall gets fuller and fuller and we eventually have to buy an auditorium. Church growth looks like Christians reaching out to other people. One by one I'm going out. That's growth. That's what growth looks like. When relationships get deeper and deeper. It's Ephesians 4 verse 11 to 14. That whole text that I pasted in there. Really it's the text in the New Testament. speaks about God giving gifts to the church. And those gifts, you know, individuals, pastors, trainers, teachers, people who can teach in the church, he, he uses those people to build the members of the church up so they can do the work of reaching out to other people. That's what it looks like. So God has empowered us to create collective stability and safety in this church so people can come in here week. People can come in here and fail. People can come in here and confess their sins. People can come in here and we can develop relationships, relationships with them where we don't throw them under the bus with all of their personal information. We care for them. We protect people. We love people. And we see people grow by the grace of God. God has empowered you to worship. So yes, your life is going to be a messy journey of failures and successes. But it is inside of these messy relationships that we find joy. 
We find blessing. We find a wonderful experience of Christian togetherness inside of the mess. We're not aiming to the point where none of us struggles with sin anymore. We're aiming for the point where we can have joy among ourselves knowing that we are all struggling to some degree or other with different sins. That's what we remember. We remember that we're worshipping through this journey of failures and successes. You can safely embrace the incomplete process without falling into one of these two errors. The first error is, you know what, the fact that this is so messy, I don't actually need to work on my sin at all. That's the one error. The other error is that I need to keep working and working and working, otherwise God's going to be disappointed if I fail again. No. Those are two lies. Yes, we keep working, but it's safe to fail inside of the community of grace. We, we hold each other up. You can safely embrace the, complete, the incomplete process in hope that it will soon be complete in unspeakable joy when we see the Lord Jesus Christ and we are, we are made absolutely perfect and beautiful as the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely perfect and beautiful. It is in this dependent relationship with God that you rest and mature. In conclusion, I'll just read this. So to start, all it takes is one humble step toward another Christian. One step. To understand their heart and the strongest influences in their lives, you must be personal and pray you talk honestly about sin and you remember and reflect on the true nature of the walk of faith beside a gracious God. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have to look at these few thoughts. Lord, a little, a little framework that Edward Welch has put together. And Lord, you know how much, so many books have been written on this and so much scripture. We could just look at so many texts of scripture and we could discover more and more and more on any one of these or any one of these sub-points. But Lord, I pray that you would be pleased to use this, this small framework and these few thoughts powerfully in the lives of the people here and in my own heart as well. Lord, to change us, to make us people who go out in humility and develop deep relationships with other people, relationships that can help rather than to heal, so that Jesus Christ may be glorified in our church and in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen.